who was asked um, how many people had been uh, baptized that week, and he said, uh, two and a half. And, uh, and he says, oh, you had, um, you had two adults and one child? He says, oh, no. I had, we had one adult and two children. He says, because the children have a full life to live for God. And, um, and I thought, what a great way. When we see our kids, we always make sure they, they understand what it means to be a Christian. And uh, they understand their faith. And, and, and these that are as young as they are, are already telling us they, you know, what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So then we make the decision based upon their maturity, if we feel like they actually do know what's going on and understand it, then to go ahead and make that decision to allow them to be baptized. Because we do, want, do not want to withhold baptism from anyone who says, I want to follow Jesus and serve the Lord. And so we, uh, we get a chance to celebrate when we see these kids making a decision for Jesus. And, and I know many of you, I know uh, in our own family, um, at an early age, our kids, many of our kids made that decision to follow Jesus and have followed him in that process in their whole life. So God is good. Hebrews chapter 6. Are you interested at all in knowing um, kind of where we are in biblical history? Um, if you are, you're going to enjoy our study today. Um, there is a, an event that is on the horizon. We, uh, we know that because Jesus talked about it. The epistles, uh, the, the, the apostles talked about it. They said this event that's coming is, um, is, is going to be a, a necessary event prior to the coming of the Lord. There is something that happens before Jesus returns. And, um, and there, there's, uh, we have a lot of biblical history about that event, not only explained by the disciples, but early church fathers and so forth, in anticipation of that event eventually happening in a time frame. And, uh, and we're, we've been doing the study in the book of Hebrews. We're actually in chapter 6, verses um, 4 through 9, which is considered by many one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. I don't think so, I don't, I don't see it that way, but there are many that do, and oftentimes the reason for it is you have, if you have a preconceived view of how things actually work, and then there's a text that gives you trouble, you know, what do you do with that? And sometimes people just kind of have a hard time because they just say, think that it's, it's contradictory, and I don't see that in this text at all. Whenever you come to the Bible, no matter where it is, you have to take it at face value, what it's saying. Listen to what it's saying, and then, of course, you compare Scripture with Scripture as well in coming to your conclusions. But I'm just saying that to you because as we go into this text, there are, I, I did a lot of research. I have in the past. I know this text very well. I've done a lot of research, and I was incredibly surprised by how many commentators, how many pastors well-known teachers actually skip over this text. I've heard people say, I, we just don't have time to really explain this. And it's only like, you know, a few verses, you know, and it's a good way to kind of move on. But I think for me, when I come to a text, I really want to understand what, it, what it's saying, what it means. It's all, 
If the Bible is inspired by God, and it is, and every word is of the Lord, and it is, then I need to do my best at least to discover what it's saying. So we're in chapter 6 and verse 4, and I'm, uh, let me just read to you the text um, itself, and, uh, and, and, then, and then we'll go, um, we'll go back and look at it. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now we'll, we'll read uh, further on in, in a little while, but let's, let's, what I want to do is I want to take this text and take a look at it because um, there's a lot of kind of dancing around it and I don't want to dance around it. I want to just look at it and see what it says in the text and how the wording is. It says this, for it is impossible. What's impossible? Well, for those who have been and he lists these Four things about them, actually five things about them, and says to renew them. So he says, it's impossible to renew these people unto repentance. Now, is impossible, is he saying impossible, and what he means is kind of difficult or challenging? Or is he saying it's literally impossible? Well, when you're, when you're studying a, a portion of Scripture... Um, the, the, it's good to find, especially if you have a little bit of con confusion about the wording, is to find out if that same wording is used in the same text, in the same book of the Bible. Because the writer is using it in a certain way, and you would expect him to be consistent in the way that he is using those words. Make sense? So he says this. It's, let me give you an example. Um, you and I, when we talk, we would, you know, if someone says, oh, that was uncomfortable, we would say that was just kind of a little bit kind of uncomfortable. If a doctor says, well, this procedure is going to be a little uncomfortable, that's a whole different story, isn't it? <laughs> right? You know, if a doctor says it, the context is the person saying it. Doctors, it's going to be, you're, if the doctor says it's going to be a little uncomfortable, you're going, that's going to be excruciating, right? So, it's the context. So when a, per, when a writer is writing and he's using word, how does he use it in other places? An example of that is that in this, in this book, he uses the same word impossible three times. In chapter 6 and verse 18, he says it's impossible for God to lie. Does that mean it's kind of difficult for God to lie or challenging for God to lie? It's, you know, or is it impossible? Well, it's impossible. The way he uses the word there is impossible. In chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Now, is it just difficult for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin? Or is it impossible? It's impossible. Verse 11, verse 6, it says, For without faith it is impossible to please God. Well, is it difficult or it's impossible? It's impossible. So the way he uses the word tells us this, you can't get around it, 
he says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. These, it's impossible. Can't happen. He says for those who, and, and then he lists these, these qualities of the person who, if they fall away, they can't be renewed. Now understand, remember the, the background, if, if you haven't been around, this book was written, it's called Hebrews, because it was written to Hebrews. It was written, written to, these, to, to Jews who had come out of their Judaism or, and found that Jesus was the fulfillment of their Judaism, that Jesus was the Messiah that they had throughout history been looking for. And they discovered Christ and, and they became followers of Jesus. But there's tremendous persecution against them. It's very difficult for them. And many of them are, have been weakened. Some have actually gone back on, and, and decided not to follow Jesus anymore and to go back to their Judaism. And in the, the, there was a process just a little bit of history on this. It, it isn't always the way it, it happened, but there was actually a ceremony that Jews did who had, who had got, you know, become Christians and decided to go back to their Judaism. There was a ceremony that they did that was kind of like the baptism for a Christian, get baptized as a sign that I am following Jesus. They did this ceremony, and what they did is they, they drew a, a cross on the ground and they took pig's blood and they poured it on the cross and denounced Jesus as their savior. This was an open denouncing of Christ after someone had already been baptized and, and became what was in all appearance a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, it says this, it says, for those who were, were once enlightened. What is enlightened? Well, th this is the only place in the Bible that this is actually used. And uh, it means that light has come into them. That light has come into them. That somehow they've, they've, they've had a light, uh, an, uh, a light of, uh, of God's you know, wonder and his presence come into their life. And then it says, and have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, they tasted a couple of things. It says they tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to taste? Well, we think of maybe something just kind of nibbling at something or, or, or you know, touching something to our tongue or, you know, kind of kissing something, just tasting it. But again, where does that word show up in this book? It shows up in another place. And it shows up in chapter 2 and verse 9 where it says Jesus tasted death. Now, did he just nibble at it? Did he just kind of lick it? Or did he experience it fully? Did Jesus die? What's the answer? He died. He fully died. He, it wasn't like he just kind of nibbled at death. He kind of partially died, you know, kind of like Princess Bride, almost dead. You know, that, that's, this, this is a, a, a total... Um, you know, Jesus died for our sins. So tasting, Jesus tasted death, he uses it. So he has to be using it in the same context in this, in this uh, portion as well. That these have tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Well, it's, it's salvation, it's, it's forgiveness of sins, 
right? Uh, the heavenly gift is the Holy Spirit, and he actually says this, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. So this is a sharing, this is a participation with the Holy Spirit. And have tasted the good word of God. See, so they experienced God's word. You know, and of course you would understand that to mean the word of Christ as well. And, and the powers of the age to come. Now this is supernatural experience. They had supernatural experience. They experienced the powers of the age to come. Now, anyone described that way, you would go, you might consider them to be a leader in the church, right? I mean, this person has had an incredible experience with God, and you would go, boy, they're qualified to be probably able to to do anything. They, they, They have had that full kind of experience. But there is an issue about whether they are, in fact, truly saved or not, and that's the argument, which, um, you know, were they truly saved and, and, and then fell away, or were they someone who had all the experiences, this dynamic experience that you would consider a saved person having, but they weren't truly born again? That's the argument. I think the argument also, or maybe it's better described, is that there are people who in fact think they have purchased, or God has purchased, and they have, they have accepted the ticket to heaven. And there are those who are true believers. In other words, there are those who think, you know, they, they said some sinner's prayer years ago, and now since they said it, they just, I mean, I got the ticket. And I, I kind of live my life and do whatever, but I, you know, I've already prayed that prayer. I've got the ticket, you know, uh, to heaven. I've got fire insurance, whatever it might be. And instead of really being a person who has been, become a follower of Christ and that their experience in receiving Christ was the kind of faith that became transformational. That the Holy Spirit literally came in them and transformed them. Now, he, he, he goes on to say, if they fall away, now this is not just falling, there's a difference, different, there's a difference between falling away. Everybody say falling away. There's a difference between falling away and following in the scripture. Someone can fall. And that's different than falling away. And when someone falls away, the consequences are different than someone who falls. Fact is, all of us fall. We've all fallen. You know, I I think so. Is there anyone here that has lived, lived, even since you became a Christian, a perfect Christian life without sinning? Is there anyone I'm not trying to cause anybody to stumble by lying at this point. (laughs) But no one one puts their hand up on that one. We've all fallen, if we're honest. And um, so, but he says, if someone falls away, verse 6, it's it's impossible, right, to, to, 
um, to renew them again to repentance since they have crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. See, so this probably is looking to that, that process that they went through that if somebody goes through that process, it's impossible to renew them. And now why is it impossible to renew them? Can a person who falls or falls away say yes to Jesus again? Can they come back? Can they repent? And here's the point that I believe he is making. He is making the point that if a person has rejected the only means of, of repentance, that's Jesus. How can they find repentance if Jesus isn't the way of repentance? If they've gone back to their Judaism and they're back to sacrificing animals or, you know, and, or even beyond, you know, to the place now even Judaism doesn't sacrifice animals, but it doesn't believe in Christ as a Messiah, Jesus is not the answer. If Jesus can't, if, if, if the renewal or the renewing or the repentance has to come through Jesus, then how can someone be renewed if it isn't through Jesus. And they have, re, re, they have rejected the only means of repentance and, and, uh, and forgiveness. It has to come through Jesus, and that's the only, and they have rejected the only means. So how, how, how else can it happen? It's impossible. And it can only happen through Jesus. And they have decided they don't want Jesus. You see. Now, the, it's interesting how the, the other portion of Scripture, and I want to bring this in because I, I promised you something um, at the beginning. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, Jesus tells, actually, in Luke and Matthew and Mark, tells the story of the sower and the seed. Some of you would remember that if you've read those texts before. And Jesus talked about so, a sower goes out and he sows seed. And there's four, four locations uh, for the seed to land. And, uh, and one of them is good ground and, and it bears much fruit. But one of the areas in which it, it falls is on the rocks. So the sower goes out and he sows the seed. And it says this about the sower who sows the seed on the rocks. It tells us the rocks represent the heart of the individual the seed represents the word of God that lands on it. And it says this. It says, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they what? Fall away. In a time of temptation, they fall away. So that's... A, the, the problem is that they're falling away. And the, the challenge is that when they, they get the word and they sprout, you might have known someone like this, where it seems like all of a sudden they're so excited about God and it doesn't take long. All of a sudden, there's a, they, they, they believe for a while, but then temptation comes, draws them back, and they're gone. And you go, what happened to them? They were so excited. It could be excited one week. They could be praising and joyful and dancing around. I love Jesus. And the next week, it's like, well, who's Jesus? You know, 
Yeah, that was a great fa- phase in my life. Yeah. This, is, this is where people will have said, yeah, I tried that. You, you've, heard, you've heard people say, oh yeah, I've tried Christianity. Yeah, I tried that. But there was no root. There was no place for the word of God to settle in their life and grow and become all that God wanted to be. Jesus warned about this when he said in, in Matthew 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name. Sounds like somebody's pretty committed. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because I don't know you. See? They had a religion, but they didn't have a relationship. And so... Uh, David Guzik uh, gives some pretty good uh, uh, cliché, deals with these clichés that get people messed up in their thinking. And I would just want to bear, there's two of them. And I, I agree with them, so that's why I'm sharing them. He says, you know, by the way, clichés can be good. There, there are good clichés, Christian clichés. A cliché is something trying to capsulize an idea of the scripture in other words, but it isn't the scripture. It, it isn't a quote of the scripture. It's a different quote. And, and people comes up, come up with some good ones at times. But sometimes they're just totally off. And sometimes they, they actually um, twist what the scripture is actually saying. So one of the, the cliches that people use is uh, a cliche called losing your salvation. They'll say some people on one side of the can say you can lose your salvation. And then there are others on the other side of that will say you can never lose your salvation. That is just a... T- a bad cliche. It's just a terrible cliche. It's the idea that somebody, you know, have you ever lost your keys or you lost your phone or you know what I'm talking about? You don't know where it is. You don't even know where you left it. You don't know what happened, you know, where, where, where you lost it sometimes. You could be anywhere and you just lost it. It wasn't, it, there, there was no intentionality. It was an accident and accidents happen and you lose it. And it's that idea. Right? If you use that, you can lose your salvation. You don't even know where you lost it. It's kind of happened. That is so unbiblical. The Bible talks about the security of salvation so much. The Bible talks about the fact that you've been sealed until the day by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you're in, you're in the hand of Jesus and no one can take you out in your hand of the Father and no one can take him out. You're, you have, uh, he who began a good work in you is going to continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. There is, there is such security that God gives us to, to use a term like losing your salvation. Well, that's, I think, that is, does damage to the truth of God's word. But there's another one. Here's one. Have you ever heard this? You have, if you've been a Christian very long. Once saved, always saved. It's a cliche. The Bible doesn't say that. Once saved, always saved. It's a cliche that is used oftentimes. But the problem is, it doesn't take into consideration the entirety of salvation. Because the entirety of salvation is, we were saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. That salvation, it comes in that fullness of that. It isn't a ticket bought at some point. I, you, you, it could be said, 
really saved, always saved, maybe, is a little bit more accurate. But I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the incredible warning that has come here to us. We don't have very many of these in the Bible, in the New Testament. Most of the word is to encourage us. In fact, he goes down and does, and that's the exact thing he does. He starts encouraging these, these people. That they can trust in God, that you, you don't lose your salvation. And something that just comes that way. And that these who are making the decision to reject Christ, it is not a, it's not a decision, I, you know, I think, it isn't just a, a, a situation where somebody falls into sin and then they sin their way out of salvation. Because you didn't righteous living your way into salvation. Right? You, you, didn't live, you didn't live so good that so, at some point in your life you got so good that God said, okay, now you're saved. No, that never happened to anybody. You came in. You can't, you, you can't leave your salvation through a door that you didn't come in by. Okay? But this caution is still very strong. Because not only that, there's an element to it that tells us we're getting closer to a time where what happened, what he was warning against to these Hebrews is going to happen in a mass scale around the world. A mass scale. In 2 Thessalonians, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, um, if you want to follow on this one. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. She says, this is when Jesus is coming. And we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus. The time frame of that, there's different views here. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ has come. He's telling them there were those who thought they missed it. He said, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. Now, there has been some recent false teaching that this falling away means be catching away. They're, they're trying to, some, some people are trying to say that's the rapture, and it isn't. All of history, it's never been interpreted that way. I'll tell you how it's interpreted. I mean, we see it even where the Bible interprets itself. 1 Timothy 4.1 4, says this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the last times, some will depart from the faith. That, there it is. That, that is the falling away that, that, Thessal, that Paul is writing about in Thessalonians, and that's the same thing that Paul is writing about to Timothy when he says, in the last days, we know this. We know this because Jesus said it was going to happen. And 2 Peter 3.16 says, as also in all the epistles, speaking in them of th these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do to the rest of scriptures. And you, therefore, beloved, since you know this, 
beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have these warnings that tell us that there is going to be a great falling away. And that falling away is going to happen before the coming of the Lord. And, and there's also plenty of scripture that tells us before the falling away, there's going to be a great move of God. Peter talked about that, about the former rain and the latter rain that Joel had prophesied and said on the day of Pentecost, this is, this is the outpouring that Joel talked about. This was the former rain, but there's going to be a latter rain. What is that? That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what we're going to experience. And many believe, I believe, that before the coming of the Lord there's going to be a great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. I believe there's going to be a revival. I'm looking for that move of God. And I believe it's not local. I believe it's, it's worldwide. But then there will also be something that brings together a great falling away. That's going to take place. And I, the question that some of you might have is, well, when is this all going to take place? Really soon. And, and I believe, I believe that, and, and what I wanted to, to end with, and it's going to take me a few minutes, but I want to end with the oldest prophecy, time frame prophecy in history, a biblical time frame prophecy in history. And, and um, it's exposed by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9. Isaiah says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring, everybody say declaring, the end from the beginning. Say the end from the beginning. The end from the, what is that? He says, he's declaring what's going to come at the end. When, when did he declare it? At the beginning. Now, what was declared at the beginning? Well, when you look at the, the beginning, it starts off in the beginning, right? It tells us, the Bible says, in the beginning. And by the way, that phrase, in the beginning, there's a whole dynamic, um, and we'll get into it someday about that, that actually shows um, some very interesting things about that prediction of Scripture, just in the Hebrew word itself. But, but at the beginning, what, what happened? Well, God created the heavens and the earth. What was the time frame? of that. What happened? Well, there were seven days, we, six days he, he, he worked and in the creation, and on the seventh day he rested. Now everything about from that has, has, is part of an ongoing a reminder to us, we're, we're worshiping on Sunday because the resurrection was on Sunday. But there's a seven-day period that has been part of the, the, um, you know, the calendar for as far back as we know. And this seven-day process, God set up that you're to work six days and then seventh day, you're to have a, a day of rest. And what is that doing? It's because God rested on the seventh day. 
But it's more than that. It's an anticipation of something and a reminder of something. And from the earliest times, there has been an understanding that that seven-day period is also prophetic of the entire age of that God has uh, will be working with mankind. That that seven-day period is is anticipatory about what God is going to do. And and it's repeated in several cases. For instance, in Psalms ninety. Uh, It tells us, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. It's it's then repeated by Peter who says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And we see this this pattern in scripture that early writers, early followers of, well, even before Christ, rabbis in In the earliest time, for instance, a rabbi named Elias in 200 years before Jesus, who is not, he's quoting others. This is not a new concept to him. This is something in the Old Testament Jews, before Jesus even arrived on the scene, he said this. The world endures 6,000 years, 2,000 before the law, 2,000 under the law, and 2,000 under Messiah. He's saying that before Jesus even comes. Isn't that interesting? So he identifies that there's 6,000 years before Messiah. He says 2,000 years under Messiah. And then then there's going to be, what, 1,000 years of millennial reign is what it's called. That Christ Christ comes, the Messiah comes back, and he rules and reigns. Have you ever, you've read... Um, if you read this, the book of Acts, you read about Barnabas. Barnabas was a partner with Paul. Barnabas wrote a book. And um, there's a phony book um, called The Gospel of Barnabas. It was written in the 1600s. But there's a, a, an early, uh, er, early uh, rendition of the epistle of Barnabas. And uh, it, it's, a, it's in Greek. It has 21 chapters. And... Um, and, and this is what he says. And God made in six days the works of his hands, and he finished them on the seventh day, and he rested on the seventh day and sanctified it. Consider, my children, what that signifies. He finished them in six days. The meaning of it is this, that in 6,000 years the Lord God will bring all things to an end, For with him one day is as a thousand years as himself testified, saying, Behold, this day shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is, in six thousand years, shall all things be accomplished. And what is it that he saith? And he rested the seventh day. He meaneth this, that when his son shall come and abolish the season of the wicked one, the Antichrist, the, the judge, the ungodly, shall change the sun and the moon and the stars, then he shall gloriously rest in the seventh day. Now, this is way back. Irenaeus, you might wonder who Irenaeus is. Well, he was dis, a disciple of Polycarp. And now I've really made it clear for you, haven't I? <laughs> Polycarp was a disciple of John. 
the apostle, the one who wrote five books of the New Testament, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, Polycarp. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. Polycarp was discipled by John. I think they might know a little bit about end time stuff, right? Discipled by the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. Well, he says this, talking about Genesis. He says, this is an account of the things formerly created, as also it is a prophecy of what is to come. For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were completed. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the, at the 6,000 years. Okay, so he's saying the same thing. Now, there's all kinds of other, I, don't, I can't take much more time on this, but um, we have writings like this, and and what we have is two things that the Bible predicts and says will happen that we know. There's more, but there's two main things um, that, that are prevalent in end times teaching in the early church fathers. Early church fathers, when you read them, you'll find there's a consistency about certain things. And these are the two things that you find consistently there. Uh, one is found in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, um, and that is... The, the scripture says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. There was a, they, they understood that there was going to be a falling away somewhere along the line. At different times, they actually thought the falling away was happening when they saw that there were believers, maybe sometimes uh, because of persecution, were falling away. The other thing they believe is this. They believe there would be a 6,000 years of biblical history before the return of Jesus and then 1,000 years of his reign on earth. And that was a consistent idea in the early church. It, it, um, it, it kind of went away, that believing, that, that idea. It went away for a while. It went away for about 1,000 years. And, and the history of it, the reason it went away, was because there, the, the, um, there was a, a, a theologian, uh, a, uh, a very respected theologian leader in the early church. His name was Hippolytus. I mean, Hippolytus lived up until 235 A.D. And Hippolytus took... He, at that time, there was a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know, you have an English translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was in Hebrew. We translated into Greek. He, I mean, into English. He, he had a Greek translation called the Septuagint. And, and he used that Greek translation to try to find all the ages, and to determine how many years it had been since Adam. And, he, you know, you go back and you go, well, they lived so many years, and this one lived so many years, and this one lived so many years, and some of it overlaps, and you have to do your math. It's a, it's a detailed work that you do. And what he didn't know was because he was reading from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew original language, he was making some major mistakes. And so when he came down to it, 
he assumed that Jesus didn't, you know, that Jesus didn't die at the year, at 4,000 years after Adam, but at 5,500 years after Adam. He made this major uh, mistake. And so he then predicted, listen, he's a well-known, this guy is more, more than like the Billy Graham of their day. He was a theologian, not just an evangelist. Everybody really paid attention to him. The church leaders paid attention to him. So they made the assumption that Jesus had to come back at the year 500 A.D. Okay? So they're looking that he's going to come back at the year because they think that's 7,000 years. Now listen, it, now we all know he was wrong. I mean, I'm talking about theologians all know. It's really easy. It's not that hard, actually. We have the resources and make it a lot easier for us to do that work and to do it better, do it right. But he made the mistake. They believed him. And there was this huge anticipation that Jesus was going to come back at 500 A.D. There was also a view that Jesus would not come back until after 7,000 years. Not at 6,000 years, but there would be no millennium called an all-millennial view by a man named Augustine, and St. Augustine is well-known. Um, and Augustine had believed that that was possibly the way it was going to happen. But it was still the mainstay of the church to believe that Jesus was going to come back at 500 A.D. And when he didn't, because his math was wrong, then the church decided, well, Jesus is not coming back until we... And this was at a point, 500 A.D., that the church became a political movement until we usher in Jesus by changing the whole world. And we're going we're gonna to change the whole world, and we're going to turn the world into the millennium where God reigns spiritually over the whole world, and then Jesus maybe will come back. There's all, all kinds of theological mistakes that happen because of that that affect, affected the church, and the church did not... They, the church started reading prophecies about Jesus and the return in the book of Revelation. Instead of taking them literally, they started taking them spiritually. They would say, well, I know it says here that, you know, Israel's going to become a nation again, going to come back. They're going to have, they're gonna, there's going to be a reestablishment of the temple and all of that. But that's just spiritual. And we're just talking about spiritual things. And what the church did is it took that which the Bible said literally and spiritualized it. And then some things started to happen. In the last hundred years, and especially in the last 50 years, all of a sudden there became a literal fulfillment of the scriptures. So the Jews were scattered all over the world. And they started coming back, and the nation of Israel was formed, and all these things that the Bible has said is going to happen is happening right before our eyes. And we're looking at it, and the church, at least for at least 100 years, started to see it all happening, and now we're right in the middle of it, and we're seeing it all happening literally. What the church had spiritualized because of a false understanding. And now... We're, we're, we're figuring it out right at the end. 
Because some of you are wondering, when is this 6,000-year period over? When does it come? And we actually know that. It's 2,000 years, remember? The, the one quote, 2,000 years after Christ, that 6,000-year period, time period comes. And we know at least in a, there's a four-year gap we're uncertain of. It, it, it falls within a four-year gap of the year 2029 to 2033. That is 6,000 years, biblically. That is, just, that is the time frame we know. Between 2029 and 2033, it's going to be 6,000 years. If Jesus is coming back, this is the oldest view of the time frame of Christ in church history, in Bible, it's the oldest view. And wouldn't you think, I mean, there are people talking about this. I'm not the only one by any means. I, I started actually teaching this 40 years ago. But think about that. I mean, we have people who are talking that it's going to be thousands of years in the future. They were not looking for Jesus right then, were they? Obviously, they were saying it's going to be a 6,000-year period. This is something that's been going on. They're saying way down the road. And now we're right at the way down the road. I'm not making the prediction of when he's coming back, but I have some pretty strong views on that. Now, if that's the case, that Jesus is going to fulfill that ongoing prophecy, then that means there's a lot of things that have to happen in the next 9 to 13 years. A lot of things. And if you're wondering what's going on in this world, it seems like everything's getting shaken up. Everything's going to be shaken up. I'm going to tell you this. And that should not scare you. That should cause you to be excited because if our Lord's coming back, the world's going to be a better place. And if our Lord's coming back, we're going to be, we're going to be rescued. So that should excite you, but it also should keep your eyes open, right? Because at some point, this next election is a big deal. It's a big deal. And, and there's all kinds of issues, right? There's, there's issues about the border. There's issues about health care. There's issues about, uh, you know, even to me, the biggest issue is, uh, is abortion in that sense. But one tell you, there's even a bigger issue about this working of the time frame of biblical history. What is that? I'll tell you what it is. Right now, we have an administration that is pro-Israel. It's protectionist of Israel. Israel can do all kinds of things, annex portions of, of the land that they, they rightfully have too. They have that, that uh, power, right, to do that right now. So, well, it's one, it's one administration away from pulling back from Israel and its protectionists that would allow other nations like Turkey, by the way, and its desire to to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, who has already said Jerusalem, they own Jerusalem. They have the rights to Jerusalem, right? They're also saying that about 
the Armenian, you know, right now, Syria. They go down the list. Egypt. They're saying that's all their land. They don't own it. You know, they have, have other people occupying it, but they say it's theirs. They own it because they gave it up in 1917 when the Ottoman Empire agreed to giving up all those, th- th- that land when they lost the war, First World War. And they had that for 800 years, that empire. And they're determined to get it back. And they got the nation that has the fourth largest military in the world. And they are already expanding. And their whole plan, their entire plan, is to to restore the Ottoman Empire. And they're working on that end. And somewhere along the line, the Antichrist kingdom will rise up. And it will attack Israel. And either one of two things happens to the United States. Either we are economically and militarily defeated. That's one scenario. Or we have an administration, which would be a lot easier, an administration that just says, we're hands off on Israel. If if Israel gets in trouble, we're we're not jumping into the fight. We've already had administrations already in, in that. Our previous administration actually was that and, and decided that they were not going to protect Israel from the, the, the um, going back, forcing them to go back to the 1967 borders. We're close. So keep in tune. And here's something I say to everyone that's watching and so forth. You know, um, The Bible says this, in this book we've been studying, Book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as you see the day approach. What day? It's the coming of the Lord. The closer we get, the more we need one another. There's going to be a great falling away. There's going to be a great deception. We need to be ready for it, church. And those who can't come for health reasons and so forth, jump in, get involved in small groups online, make sure you're close, and as soon as you can, we need to make sure we're joining together and building each other's faith. Heavenly Father, thank you. Your word is true, and I thank you, God, that we get a chance, Lord, to see this day, we, we live in an exciting time in history. And Lord, I pray that no one here will be part of that group that falls away. That Lord, we stand as followers of Jesus Christ, committed to stand firm in the faith that you've given to us. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.
blessed as you go. We'll see you Wednesday night. So I will rest. Yeah.